Are you ready for life's greatest challenges? I think it's a really good question that we have to wrestle with because you can't fake your way through the answer. Are you ready for life's greatest challenges? Some of us may sit back and say, well, absolutely, I'm ready. I've, I've gone through this and I've gone through that. But are you sure? Some of you say, and your, your faith may be so simplistic, where you say, well, absolutely, I gave, my, I gave my life to Jesus 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. You may say, well, of course, I gave my life to Jesus. True, but are you ready for life's greatest challenges? See, that's a different question. You may know where your faith lies, but how are you doing with that faith? I think life can be summarized with the way that we handle a bunch of, of circumstances. And of course, faith is a huge part of that. And some of us have faith in Christ and some of us don't. But to be field tested is to be able to handle life's greatest challenges. I know it sounds like an oversell, but I think that it is. I think, that, I think to be field tested and what we're gonna dig into in this whole series is for you to be better prepared for life's greatest challenges. So as we jump in to field tested, I just want to ask you this question, and it's a springboard right off of the song that we just heard. What is your faith rooted in? Because a field tested faith can't be borrowed from me. A field tested faith can't be borrowed from your parents. A field tested faith is personal in nature. A field-tested faith can't be borrowed from your community group leader. It can't be borrowed from your kids. It can't be borrowed from your spouse. A field-tested faith is personal in nature. Oftentimes, I, I wonder what it is that God thinks about me. What he thinks about me. And I think when, when God thinks about me, he, he doesn't just see a bunch of, uh, like, you know, untapped, or he doesn't necessarily see just a bunch of unresolved issues. I think when he looks at me, and I think it's the same when he looks at you, he sees somebody who has a bunch of untapped potential. It's just we're not there yet. Maybe because we, we haven't been tested to see if it's there. Maybe it's, it's right on the other side of you saying yes to whatever it is that God will want you to do. When you have stiff-armed God and you've said, no, I'm good, I'm as far as I want to go. But maybe right on the other side of your yes is something so significant to your life, so impactful to your life, maybe impactful to the world. But understand this, a field-tested faith cannot and it will not ever be able to be borrowed. You own that. You do. Just as I make the response for, for my life and I'm obliga obligated to, to the effects of my life. But you are accountable to yours. As we go into the Bible this morning, into Judges 3, we're going to see some surprising things. This is not some big, su just huge, super spiritual individual that we look into. As a matter of fact, you may sit back at this because maybe you, you lend to the understanding of the New Testament where it's, it's kind of the age of grace. And then if, you, if you're even familiar at all with the Bible in the Old Testament, you see that oftentimes God um, moves in different ways. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, God moves by, by armies and might and by sword. And yet 
Christians are in the age of grace in Jesus. He says, no, no, you don't need a sword. Put your sword away. But in the Old Testament, it's the same God who moved in different ways. And it may be surprising to you. He's not some super spiritual person, but what we see in this is that God delivers his people from hopeless situations in surprising ways. That's what God does. That's what we're going to see in this text. That God delivers his people from hopeless situations in surprising ways. And he uses maybe even our greatest weakness. And that's what we see. You see an individual who has a severe weakness. You're going to see this in the text. A severe weakness. I'll give you just a a little bit of understanding of what's happening in this part of the Bible. This is after Moses, after Joshua. Right after Joshua, he was a great uh, military leader, a great military mind, and also a great man of God. And he, um, after Joshua left, there was just kind of this, this vacancy, a void of leadership. And understand this, it's the same thing in your house and it's the same thing in the church. It's the same thing with any people of God. When there is no leadership, chaos abounds. When there's no leadership, chaos abounds. It's the same truth in your home. If there's no leadership in your home, chaos abounds. If there's no leadership in your home, what are your kids going to do? Maybe think about this a different way. Maybe you leave for the day and you, tell, and you just tell your kids. You just leave. You just tell your kids, you know what? There's no rules. Do whatever you want until I get back. What's that going to look like? It's going to be chaos, right? When there's no leadership, chaos abounds. And that's what we see in this part of the Bible. Particularly in the book of Judges, this is a collection, this is a history, just a collection of, of historical documents all put together gathered uh, people who were leading in a time where there's no real leadership, no spiritual leadership, and you see somebody who rises up, um, and this guy particularly is a guy by the name of Ehud. And Ehud, I'm probably going to say that wrong throughout the rest of this talk, um, but he is someone who kind of, he comes off the bench, at least it seems like he would be the last person voted to be in charge, and yet because of a weakness, he's the one who's then put in charge. Let's jump into this. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this, the evil, uh, because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. You see this over and over and over in the Old Testament. That the people of God disobeyed God, then God would bring up an army against the people of God, so that the people of God would then repent and they would go back to God. And this is just an endless cycle in the Old Testament. Also, verse 13, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. So now there's three groups against Israel, and they took possession of the city of of palms. This is the, the city of Jericho. This would be uh, just as during the time of Joshua when the walls of Jericho had fallen and the Israelites went in and they took the plunder and then they took over the city. It's this city. The city of palms is Jericho. So Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years. Rebellion leads to ruin. That's what we see here. If you and I disobey God at any degree, there's going to be a consequence. 
Now for us, the consequence isn't going to be some, some raging army that comes in and now gets chummy with two other armies and then they come in and, and dominate us maybe personally. But trust me when I tell you, this is consistent throughout Old and New Testament, we all have a responsibility when we are all called to obey God and do what it is that he's called us to do. If we disobey God, we will reap the whirlwind. That consequence, the pain, the grief, the sorrow. And that'll be on us. That's what we see right here in this text. Verse 15, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his inner thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. That's what the Bible says, sorry. A little chubby. Verse 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent them on their way, the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Let me give you some little bit of understanding here. When you get into particular into the Old Testament, into a bunch of different groups you've never heard of, of the, the ites, is, it's kind of joked around about the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and you, you just kind of almost we can become numb that these people didn't really exist, and it was kind of like Maswell being saying Mordor, you know, from like Lord of Rings, and it seems like, oh, it's a land far, far, far away, you know, like it just like it, it wasn't an actual place. There was actually an excavation in the 30s. A, a British archaeologist in the 30s actually went into this city and found this civilization, so just as the time we start to become kind of lost, like, ah, I don't even know if this is real, this was actually proven archaeologically, that they went in and they did a dig and they could verify this same civilization in this time period. To me, that's remarkable. So just in case you're a little bit skeptical of that, you have to, to some degree, give an answer to that. So Ehud had a problem. He, he had a problem. It said that he was a left-handed man, but that's not really the best way of understanding. The best way of understanding it is he was bound in the right hand. He had a physical limitation. So one hand did not work. What would have probably, and I don't even know this for sure, it doesn't say this in the text, I couldn't find it, but what I think is just, is, is just something that maybe he had to live with. He was a Benjamite, and that meant the, the, the brother or the son of my right hand. And yet Ehud's right hand didn't work. It's, it's almost cruel, isn't it? So it's saying he's, he's the son of my right hand, but his, his right hand was lame. Now there's different ways they speculate on why it was lame. Some, things, some people believe that this was like some militaristic way that this particular group of people, they would literally bind their right hand. And then after binding their right hand, that they would be left hand dominant and then would be sneaky and they would be of value in war. We don't know that for sure. That's, that's only speculation. But if you just go by the pure interpretation of this, that he was bound in the right hand, I think the best interpretation is that his right hand just simply did not work. So he goes up to this king with a right hand that didn't work. I'm sure that it was something like this. 
And he goes and he has a dagger on his right thigh. So as he goes, you may be uncomfortable with this, but this is, I mean, this is in the Bible, so you can do with it what you want. But if you're a Christian, we have to kind of see, okay, what's going on here in this text? So as he's he's bound in, in his right hand, it doesn't work, and he has a dagger in his right thigh, and he uses his left hand, and then we're actually gonna see what happens next. But he is, that had to have been his limitation his whole life. Whether or not he caused it himself, which I don't think that that happened, why would you do that? But he was, bound in his right hand his right hand didn't work living his life maimed think if that were you that would have that limitation would have defined his life maybe you think that your limitations define your life verse 20 Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand. He drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the, hand, the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Again, it's in the Bible. That's gross, right? It's there. Then Ehud went out to the porch, and he shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and he locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, well, he must be relieving himself in, the, in a room of the house. I, just, I love how the Bible is just like so true to real life. You're going to see this even more. So they thought he was relieving himself, and then in verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment. Do whatever you want. Insert potty talk there if you want. Um, But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord, small L, fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him, leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord had given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over and at that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. I realize that text like this is troublesome because sometimes our, our image of God is a little bit different and we live in the age of grace like i had mentioned a couple moments ago and it's like where's the grace in this well i think the grace was brought about by them by them offering themselves of repenting and going back to god now how god worked out the details after that is up to god but i think there's grace in that because great because the grace of god was there to allow them a u-turn to come back to god but that's not what i want us to see out of this passage what i really want us to see out of this passage is how his own limitation, his own limitation being bound in the right hand could have become a crutch for him for his whole life. It could have been. We all have things that limit us. 
I say this a lot, actually, that I, I, I believe that no one walks through life without a limp. What that means is that we all have a limitation. We all have a struggle. We all do. And because we all have that limp, we all have that struggle, we, are, we could be so tempted to all use that as an excuse for not doing what God wants us to do. Really, if you want to just get the bottom line for this text is stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. Give you a positive element that I see in this and some other biblical examples of this. God equips the called, but he rarely ever calls the equipped. God equips the called and rarely ever calls the equipped. See, he wants, he wants people to say yes to him. I'll do it. Even though I struggle, even though I have some grief, even though I've got some baggage, even though I'm physically limited, even, even though I'm, my time is limited, even though I'm relationally limited, even though I just don't know what it is that I'm supposed to do, God wants us to say yes. And a field-tested faith starts when you say yes to Jesus. And then God equips those that are called. And every person who has committed their life to Jesus Christ is called to do good works and to glorify our King. Every one of us, without exception. But notice the latter part of this quote. But rarely ever calls the equipped. You see, he he doesn't just use the people who have it all together because then they would be tempted to take all the credit. God wants to be glorified, and God is most glorified in our weakness. In our weakness. Moses was tongue-tied. David was too young to be king, to be called the king. Timothy was, was too young to be the pastor, but he was a great pastor in the church of Ephesus. Joseph's family, Old Testament, they hated him. He was an outcast in his own family. John the Baptist, well, John the Baptist was just weird. Like, if you read that, he was just weird. He really was. Peter, he talked before he thought. Paul was hated by the early church. As a matter of fact, even after Paul gave gave his life to Christ, then he was going around to share the gospel with other people, and they were like, and then then to have some community with other believers, and they're like, no, 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 I remember this dude. I remember him. Isn't he the one who was persecuting Christians? Like he even had some issues. Did great things for God. All of them did. We all have some issue or another and we think that hinders us. Here's some things that we start to believe about ourselves. Well, I simply, I just don't know enough to do anything for Christ. That's wrong. That's wrong thinking. Well, I just don't know enough. Well, my past defines my future. My physical limitations limit my potential. That's not true. My personality gets in the way. My parents don't believe like I do. Or my spouse just doesn't get it. Or one of the things I think is just the biggest lie that's perpetuated with church folk, and I'm sorry that that this is going to become firm, and this lie that is just perpetuated with church folk is this, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. But, but if you think about this, and I'm just going to think about serving here in, this, in, in this, these environments that we've kind of created Sunday to Sunday. 
and throughout the week in community groups. Somebody already said yes to lead the groups that we are absorbing. Somebody said yes to serve in DBC Kids. Somebody said yes to go back there and to serve those kids. And they said yes to Jesus to be able to go back there and serve um, and, and be small group leaders for our kids. Somebody said yes to serve our students in Arise. Somebody said yes to go back there and serve coffee. Somebody said yes to Jesus and they're at the door shaking hands. Somebody said yes to Jesus and they grabbed an instrument and they, and they began a craft and they started a journey. Some people said yes and they grabbed a microphone. It's as simple as saying yes to Jesus. A field-tested faith cannot be borrowed from someone else, but it begins when you say yes. God equips the called, and He rarely ever calls the equipped. So let's limit the excuses. Let me ask you this question. Did God not know about your issues when he saved you, Christian? Did, did God not know about your issues? He's like, I don't know. They're saved, but man, they are jacked up. I don't know. They're just <laughs> like, if you would know what I know, mm-mm. Like, God's not doing that. He doesn't have some, I, I, I firmly believe he doesn't just have some checklist up in heaven where he's just thinking, well, there they go again. I believe when he looks at us, he sees people of untapped potential, and that's including me. I don't believe just because I'm up here with a microphone that, I, that I've, I've, I've got all my potential. It's just lived out Sunday to Sunday. That as I deepen my walk with God, as the more that my faith is field tested, the more that he reveals in me, the more strength that, that he, he brings up in me, and the more that I glorify him and the more that I can do for him. But did God not know about your issues when he saved you? He did not save you so you could fret over what you couldn't do. He saved you so that he could enable you to do what only he can do. He didn't save you so you could just fret over what you couldn't do. I don't know, I have this, and I, I clinically, they, uh, I went to a doctor, and he said that I have this diagnosis, and I've got this problem, and I've got this past, and my parents, and my kids, and my grandkids, and I'm just, I just don't have this, and I just don't have that. He saved you so that he can enable you to do what only he can do through you. Through you. Not just through me. You see, that, that would be you trying to have a field-tested faith lived out through someone else. But through you. As individuals. There's a quote I, I ran across and I've been kind of chewing on it for a little while and it, and it says this. It's from a book called The Candy Makers by windy mass it says be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about see and i i don't want to come across as crass or mean to you but i i i want you 
to start experiencing some of the hope of the gospel. I want you to, to be able to experience some of the potential that I believe that God has put in you. So I don't want to be crass or arrogant or, or mean. Certainly, I don't want to be. But also, I don't want you to be so limited on what God wants to do in and through you by your excuses. I don't. You see, Ehud, he could, have, he could have just said, I can't be the deliverer. I can't do that. I only have one good arm. I, I can't even grab a sword with my right arm. What, what, if, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if the king doesn't like, go right along with it? But he was trusting God. You see, God brought up Ehud. God empowered Ehud. He used his limitation to bring, for God to get the most glory, and it was the good of his people. So as he's bound in the right hand, and he grabs that dagger out, and he plunges it. And I almost called this message, Lefty Kills Hefty, but I didn't. I was close. Man, I was so, I was so close, but I thought you'd miss the point. I mean, I was like so close. You don't even know. But God delivers the people by the sword. And he did it by Ehud. God still delivers people by the sword, but it's a sword of a different type. It's the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and in marrow, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. See, Christian, a field-tested faith, it begins when we say yes to Jesus, but you find out the answers for, for life, for what, living out this, this field-tested, what it is that we're supposed to do, maybe some things we're supposed to do, maybe some things we're not supposed to do. It starts here. If you're a Christian, this is, this is our obligation. If you're not a Christian, you're off the hook on this one. I think you have more, more things to worry about than what I'm talking about right now. But if you're a follower of Jesus, for the word of God is alive and powerful, it's, it's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. And not for just something that's without a point. The point is it's cutting between the soul and spirit, between the joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It gets to the core of us. When we go into the word of God, I think one of the things that we start to see is how God wants to empower us. Christians, he doesn't want us to be limited by our own excuses. He wants us to say yes to him. He wants us to press into his word. Another passage I want to share with you. is 2 Timothy 3.16 it says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now notice that it says, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It doesn't say may be thoroughly equipped for every good excuse, because we come up with those all on our own. For every good work. So what, what is the Bible for? Let me put this in a little different terms. Profitable for teaching, you could say just knowing what is right. Knowing what is right. Maybe your translation says rebuking, mine says rebuking, maybe yours says reproof. And that would tell us what is not right. Or correction. 
is how to stay right. So breaking this down to a way that becomes more practical. Bible tells us what is right, what is not right, and how to get right. It's pretty simple. Simple enough you could teach your kids. See, when I look at this passage, and I, again, I don't want to be so strict and firm and come across as mean, but I want you to experience the fullness of the gospel in your life. I do. It begins with a simple yes, because a field-tested faith can't be borrowed from your mom and dad. It can't be borrowed from, well, I was a part of this faith group. It can't be borrowed from your spouse. It's personal. I love this quote that I heard from one of the best missionaries, I think, of all time, Hudson Taylor. In over his 30 years as a missionary, he had seen 600 missionaries respond to his leadership in China. So over his 30 years, 600 missionaries, even within that group, had responded to, uh, to his vision that he started there. And this is what he says, and I, I still, maybe you don't think this way, but I do. I, I think people like this are spiritual giants. I'm like, wow. You see, he, he's the one who paved the way for millions of people in China to receive the gospel. Millions. The gospel had not really permeated that group, but he himself lived there. He lived his whole, nearly his whole adult life there, committed his life to sharing the gospel there, just creating churches, and, and the churches are still underground, and they go back to him simply saying yes to God. Maybe this will catch you off guard as to what he said. God is sufficient for God's work. God chose me because I was weak enough God does not do his great works by large committees. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. To be quiet enough, not with large committees, well, let's vote on it. Be quiet enough, little enough, humility, then He uses him. And that's what happened to Ehud. He simply said yes. As God saw potential and as God saw the need for them to have some leadership, Ehud simply said yes to God. And he became the deliverer for a people. Give you a question. Kind of a phrase with a question embedded in it. The great question is this, whether or not we will trust him enough to use us. Will you trust God enough to be used of God? Will you trust God enough to be used of God? That is where a field-tested faith begins. By saying yes. Not yes to your limitations. Not, not making agreements and not, not by going through and making agreements with your past to say, no, I can never overcome my past. None of those things. 
It's saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. I need Jesus to be my deliverer, deliverer from my sin and shame. I need him to set me free. And by recognizing that Jesus was God and that he died for you on the cross, just as he died for me. And we say yes to his offer of forgiveness for our sins. We say yes that Jesus was God. And what follows from that is a life of purpose. But it began with yes. The beginning of a field-tested faith is by, is by saying yes. Will we trust God enough to let him use us? That's what we have to wrestle with. And that's what I'm going to leave you with. And there's tension in that. There's tension in that. See, the reason why I I talk about saying yes to God is because I believe when you say yes to God, that is the most important yes you could ever make. But that's where it starts. Father God, we thank you. Thank you for examples like Ehud. Seems like he could have used every excuse in the world not to do what it is that you called him to do. But you used, used his unique disability to do something awesome and to bring back a people who are enslaved to their own sin and enslaved to an enemy. Father God, I pray for the person in here today who is maybe still feeling the tension of that first question. Am I ready for life's greatest challenges? Pray God that you would just press into them and when you do so, God, I pray that you press into them the reality that they cannot do it themselves. If they say, well, yes, I am because I have this skill and I have this skill. God, reveal that to them that that that's not enough. Because a field-tested faith is proven, not borrowed. Amen.